When you hear the phrase, soft as steel, what do you think of? While the word steel might conjure up images such as massive high-rise buildings, where does the soft part come in? And what exactly does this mean in our work and in our lives? Welcome to the Soft as Steel podcast with your host, Dennis Duran, featuring engaging conversations with a wide range of industry leaders around soft skills, how we practice love, inclusion, social justice, and compassionate leadership that's everlasting in the workplace. And now, here's Dennis Duran. I might describe today's guest as working on the front lines of the ongoing crisis facing the construction industry, and this would be generally on point. Instead, my guest helps people in a manner that displays all of what is meant with the pillars that I focus on in some way in every conversation I have on the Softest Deal podcast. Love, inclusion, social justice, and leadership. Chris Scheiblein began his career in the building trades. So we would say that Chris comes from the craft and the tools. Since 2006, he has worked as an employee assistance professional. He started as a peer counselor at the Allied Trade Assistance Program in Philadelphia and soon transitioned to the clinical coordinator position in the same organization. In these roles, Chris worked closely with Philadelphia Building Trades members and their families, ensuring they received the proper help and support with substance use order and mental health challenges. In 2018, Chris became the employee assistant professional for the IBEW, Local Union 98 in Philadelphia and Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. This role allowed Chris to have a stronger presence with the workforce and within their apprentice program by providing referrals to appropriate levels of care, delivering messages geared towards eliminating stigma, and facilitating peer support. Chris is a certified employee assistance professional, has a bachelor's degree in organizational dynamics from the Chestnut Hill College in Philadelphia, and he is in long-term recovery for more than 21 years. Chris won the EAP of the Year Award in 2018 from the Employees Assistance Professional Association, as well as the Pat Curran Award in 2015, these honors distinguish Chris as a leader in the EAP field and as an individual who has dedicated significant time and provided an abundance of resources to help those who struggle behavioral health matters. In June 2022, Chris stepped into the role of director for the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades Helping Hands program. In this position, Chris is responsible for the messaging, training, and education, and resource development for 30 district councils across North America consisting of roughly 95,000 union members. Chris, welcome to the Soft to Steel podcast. Hi, Dennis. How you doing? Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to have you. You do incredibly important work. There's no other way to say it. I've had a couple of other folks visit this podcast in, in earlier times, gentlemen that you know. So you're on the younger end of the scale of folks that have emerged as being recognized by your peers and by the unionized building trades as a top-notch advocate for people with mental health, addiction, and suicide issues facing them. It is a crisis, and I'm going to ask you to comment about that a little bit. I think the first question I want to ask you is, although I may know the answer, first question I want to ask you is, why in 2006 did you get involved in, in this uh, profession? I actually kind of stumbled into it. At the time, I was three years sober, uh, coming up on four years sober. Uh, there was an opening in the Philadelphia Building Trades at that allied trades assistance program that you that you referenced they were looking for a new eap they wanted somebody somebody a little bit younger somebody from the trade 
which would be called an internal EAP, somebody that was willing to get certified and go back to school and do some work around this. So I kind of fit the bill. I didn't think I would even get the job. I didn't really know what an EAP was. I didn't utilize the EAP myself when I finally got sober. So I really wasn't that familiar. And it wasn't as popular as it is today, right? 21 years ago, these these issues weren't weren't spoke of the way they are now. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit, but it, it was more, you know, behind closed doors. People didn't talk about this as, as frequently. So I kind of stumbled into it. And why did you stay? Honestly, the description of the job is a dream job for a 30 year old guy in recovery a few years to get paid to help fellow union members to help them is, is, a, is a dream job, right? I'm getting paid to help people, you know, to get paid to give away what was freely given to me, like they say. So it, it right away, I took to it like a fish to water. It was a great fit. What's the first story you have about the early days and in, in the role you took on? The first story that just came to my mind was one of, I wasn't very polished coming out of the trades. And I wasn't very well. I couldn't speak to people very well, especially on the telephone. And I had gotten into an argument with someone on the phone. They were intoxicated at the time. And um, let's just say the old me came out a little bit. And uh, <laughs> I remember my boss running into the room with his hands flailing around, like, you know, what are you doing? And, uh, you know, I had been on the job a month or two. And, and coming from the field, you're a little rough around the edges, you know. So that that's the first story. That's not a it's not really a success story, but it was my first introduction to learning how to speak to people compassionately and empathetically and remembering who I'm dealing with because you, you can lose sight of that, right? And the first success story I remember, I remember when someone came out of treatment and uh, just the thanks that he was giving me. And again, I'm not, it's not because of me personally. I was just the conduit to get him to that space, right? But the, the appreciation and the thanks and the gratitude that came from that gentleman was really hooked me that I was able to make an impact and, and make a difference. So, You serve, in a direct sense, 93,000 people. Hmm. And if, I, if I've, as I've heard people talk about uh, mental health, addiction, suicide, and they start talking about numbers, I think one of the most interesting ways of relating all of this to every individual sitting in a room, sitting in an audience, to pose the thought that probably just about every person in this room knows someone or knows someone who knows someone, blah, blah, blah. Is that really true? Do you see the, the notion that probably every living, breathing human being, particularly as they reach their adult years, has in some way been impacted by mental health, addiction, suicide? I would say... Yes. At this time, coming up on 2024, I would say for sure. I mean, the fact that the ripple effect that these issues have on people is devastating, right? So uh, the latest CDC numbers for 2022 were 107,081 overdose deaths, 293 a day. And suicides for last year was 49,449, right? Mm -hmm. So just those numbers, the gravity of those numbers and the families that are affected by just that. And then if you take into consideration COVID and the isolation issues and the depression that was exacerbated by COVID, 
I can't see how somebody hasn't had to deal with in one form or another, personally, either internally, personally, or with a family member, right? Or a loved one. Yeah. I, I can't see how they don't have some, some relationship with this. You've been involved most recently in your role at the IUPAT and, and the launch and, and build out of the infrastructure to support the Helping Hands program. What have been the biggest challenges in trying to, uh, to make that as important, visible, and, and useful a program as possible? I think the biggest challenge with anything behavioral health related to get it prioritized and kind of like pushed out is because there's emotional barriers and attachments with, with these, this subject matter. So in other words, there's a lot of frustration, anger, and sadness and to your previous point that everyone is affected by this one way or another. Some people think of addiction as weak-minded people, right? Junkies, losers, a lot of frustration, a lot of anger. Other people have lost loved ones to this extreme sadness, right? So I think people's own kind of quote stuff gets in the way to push this at an organizational level, right? Some people get behind it full speed like I did when I got the EAP job, right? I took right to it. I was all about it. And we have those folks in the, in the industry. And then we have others that, that you know, that when you talk to them one-on-one, they 100% get this. But their own stuff, I think, gets in the way of the implementation and the follow-through, if that makes sense, on, on some of these initiatives. Um, again, none of it's done purposely. A lot of this is subconscious. Um, there's just so many emotional attachments and barriers with behavioral health. Uh, and a lot of people just don't want to talk to because it's uncomfortable. It's mm-hmm. an uncomfortable. It's still a stigmatized topic. It's just uncomfortable for people and they'd rather rather just not deal with it. Mm-hmm. So, Why do you mention just as almost like it's a it's an ingredient in introducing yourself or or uh, entering into conversations with people when you're operating in your scope of responsibility. Why do you freely acknowledge that you're, you're uh, sober and have 21 years of sobriety? Why do you say that so openly? I think it's a habit. I think it's a habit. It was something that I've done early on that I felt like gave me credibility. And I think it's actually kind of a no-no <laughs> to divulge that you're personally sober when, when trying to help people. But for me, it always worked in my favor. Mm-hmm. It gave me some credibility. And I think people related. They understood when I had people on the phone and they knew I was off of the tools and I, and I had gone through basically what they're dealing with. I've had personal experience with that. They didn't feel like they were talking to somebody who they couldn't relate to and they couldn't build a rapport with. I, I think it, it worked. So I always, and I think maybe it gives people a comfort level that, I, that I'm open I don't think it's, it's not being humble. It's more just being an open book that uh, vulnerability, I guess, right. I'm being mm-hmm. vulnerable so that maybe that my audience can be vulnerable as well, because mm-hmm. that's another big piece of this. People need to put down the, put their hands down and, and be a little open to this conversation. Yeah. Where have you seen the biggest strides in terms of having an impact just in terms of your, I would say you, you operate with a perspective as a professional in this field, in, in, in an industry with one particular segment of the industry, but overall the industry. So what have, what have you seen in the broader industry? In the IUPAT, I mean, 
the education we do, you see light bulbs go off individually. But from an organizational standpoint, out of the so the IEPAT is made up of 30 district councils, as you know, across across North America. One of our big challenges was, was to get each of those to contract or hire a vendor to do their assessments and their referrals, right? So in other words, if you have a member that needs help and they call you or they're looking on a website, where do you do with them? Point blank. Where do mm-hmm. they go? Mm-hmm. So that outside entity, that third party or that internal person, whoever it is, having that person aligned somewhere regionally specific, meaning close to them, that understands their insurances or their community resources has been huge. So to have the leadership buy into that and contract with these folks has been has been huge. And that transitions into, uh, into a significant investment of money. You're, you're talking about a, a simple little program. Mm-hmm. So when people think about any program of this type that is branded, uh, as this has been branded with the Helping Hands moniker, they're talking about an organization making a, a commitment of financial resources to build the infrastructure to be able to answer the call when it comes. Mm-hmm. So you want to applaud that. Yeah, the leadership of the IUPAT knows that. They honestly know that the return on investment is hard to quantify, but they know it's there and mm-hmm. they believe it. And so does the leadership in each district council. Mm-hmm. They know, they understand from having enough conversation and education that the positive ripple effect is well worth it. Yeah. Well worth it. Yeah. Who out there in the recovery community among the more visible advocates, experts, resources to the, the, the general industry and the, to the general public have you seen that, uh, that had an impact on you? P- other people doing what you do, you know, speaking in front of groups. I mean, you're, you're speaking to a captured audience. You've got, you know, your audience is 90,000 folks. I imagine you also have opportunities or invitations to speak in other forums, local organizations or what have you. But who's out there, you know, talking about this crisis in the manner that you're talking about it? That you perhaps look up to as a, as a mentor or some form of a person who deserves additional respect based on what they do. And the first person that comes to my mind is Bob Swanson, who was one of the founders of Helping Hand. Right? Bob was a owner of a painting company out of Minnesota who lost his son, who died by suicide 13 years ago. But but Bob has been a very strong advocate for this. And speaking of vulnerable, he's come out and told his personal story. And one of the best things about Bob that I, that I look up to is that he admits, he had openly admits that he was that guy that looked down on people that, that did this or that had this, they're weak, come on, man up and had that type attitude for people who suffered with mental health challenges. And then he was forced to deal with a tragedy in his own house and it changed him. It changed him. And he's, this is Bob will tell you this himself, right? He'll that unfortunately it took a tragedy for him to become the new Bob, to be more compassionate and understanding. But since then he's become a huge advocate for this. And he's been a great voice in the, in the construction industry as a whole. Right. And yeah, I know, you know, Bob well, and, Our hope is that we can educate more people and remove the ignorance so that they don't have to have tragedies to have that mindset and perspective shift. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a good point that uh, gets me to, to, to ask what we're talking about is trying to inform and educate people about conditions that, that affect individuals that affect their personal 
well-being, and, and one could argue broadly say that it's, it's a safety issue, among other things. If you have individuals who are under the influence, who are suffering uh, about a depression, uh, just a whole range of conditions, that affects their ability to make good decisions. It affects their ability to focus on uh, the workplace they're in and be safe in that workplace. One could argue that this is, uh, this is also a personal safety issue. Is that line of logic appropriate and is it useful in trying to uh, pull people back from the brink of saying, I just don't want to talk about this? I just, I can, you know, I just, it's too, it's too uncomfortable for me, as you said earlier? In some instances, I mean, kind of doubling down on the fact that they're very unfocused about doing their job and they're not just responsible for themselves, but they're responsible for their partners or their crew can be, can definitely be a carrot to help people be motivated to change mm-hmm. or, or to alter their behavior. It's, it's definitely an option. I think one of the things, Helping Hand, the end result of the Helping Hand program is is behavioral health assistance, right? But it it's really a program of connecting with people. It's really what it is. It's connecting with our members. It's building that rapport with them so that they feel understood and supported. If you feel that in an organization, you're going to be much more likely to reach out for help. That's That's our belief, right? So we want to kind of set those conditions first. And then the end result is that people will get the help they need for this specific underlying issue, right? But Mm -hmm. they're going to be more likely to seek that help, we feel, if they're supported, right? Mm -hmm. They feel heard. The younger generations that we're trying to attract into the construction industry, into, into the finishing trades and otherwise, they have their experiences, their habits, their behaviors, their values. Is this kind of a, an investment in the infrastructure that you built to serve the need around behavioral health? Is this something which is part of the story about coming into the construction industry that we try to tell young people in the vein of, you know, you're shaking your head, so I'll stop and let you begin to talk? Yeah. One of the ideas behind this is that they're getting education early. I didn't have this when I came in, you know, and again, it's not a fault. It's just, it wasn't talked about. It wasn't openly, freely discussed about people having mental health challenges and where to go. Right. So we want to, I guess, for lack of a better word, indoctrinate them as soon as they come in, in this normalized conversation world. Mm -hmm. So the idea behind our, or the helping hand is to normalize the conversation. That's the term we always use. We shouldn't be talking about this like it's the elephant in the room. It should be normal, unfortunately, but it should roll off your tongue, these situations. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's how and that's how the safety culture was changed in the construction industry. Also, for a long time, safety was not looked at like it is. The safety individual was the guy on the job who was a safety guy with kind of a pain in the butt telling mm-hmm. me to put my glasses on. And, you know, it didn't have the the industry around it all the safety professionals, they, they weren't what they were. They grew into that, but we ingrained every apprentice in a safety culture. They don't know any different. So that's the way I feel this should be. Mm-hmm. We should talk about this from day one in the new member orientation. Mm-hmm. We should talk about this and continue to talk about it. And then we have people that, you know, become journey persons that are, that have, have talked about this, their whole apprenticeship. They know the resources, they know the messaging, they've been educated and they're the three legs of this stool that we try to build off of. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, in opening my introduction to you, I, I said that, that we were going to focus in on some of the ways I talk about soft skills in this, in this podcast and in my book. 
And I mentioned four elements, love, inclusion, social justice, and leadership. We've kind of been talking about the leadership piece in a sense overall. Tell me how the word love fits into your vocabulary, your way of thinking and feeling, if it does, as you look at what your, your calling is and what you are doing day to day. I think we need to basically treat each other. Obviously, it's a simple statement to say treat each other loving, right? But we have a, we have a brotherhood, sisterhood that we say you're in a family. We should treat each other like that. That's really what it comes down to. And and it takes education and commitment for people to get to that. That's the truth. You know, and I don't know if that's right or wrong as far as it, you know, being good or bad that people have to work at loving one another, but that's what we need to teach Mm -hmm. because that's how we're going to advance the labor movement every in general, the IUPT and the labor movement in general, we have to treat each other loving and pick each other up when they're struggling. Mm Mm-hmm. Well said. What about inclusion? How does this, how does what you do relate to the conversations around inclusion? Well, inclusion, I, you know, when people think of inclusion, a, a lot of times it goes right to gender or race. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not that. It, it's people, people that struggle with mental behavioral health issues are stigmatized, mm-hmm. right? So that's not inclusionary. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to look at it as we're talking about everybody. And as far as our organization goes, myself and the general president say this a lot, that every member of the IUPAT should feel that this is their union mm-hmm. and he, inclusion is a feeling. Yeah. They should feel, and that goes back to the the points I made earlier about being supportive and understood. Yeah. So Good. Social justice. How does this all relate to trying to achieve social justice? You know, I didn't say these questions were going to be easy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think the members of our union, again, it's social justice and inclusivity to me are very, are hand in hand mm-hmm. to, to me. The way, the way we treat, it all boils down to the way we treat one another, right? The way we treat one another, what our makeup of our organization is, so I, I think a lot of it comes down to not excluding people. Mm-hmm. Also in the past, if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, again, you talked about the stigma associated with mental health addiction. Those were also matters that were dealt with in an entirely different way 10, 15, and 20 years ago from the standpoint of how people were viewed who were suffering from these maladies. They were treated differently. They were not treated in a, in a just and caring way. So when I think about social justice, I, I come from that, that perspective on mm-hmm. why it's important. Because you're right. You said it beautifully. Again, you know, inclusion is not just about race and gender. You know, there are many ways in which one person is different from another. And these various conditions, uh, overall mental health, addiction, and being touched by suicide or, or, or dying by suicide affects everyone. And justice on a social basis doesn't stigmatize people, doesn't see them differently. And I feel that that's still, in many ways, that's still a, that's still a big challenge for, for our society, is to recognize that differences are not something which should be something that separates, but something which is acknowledged. And then we go on dealing with each other as human beings. 
I had a professor once tell me that to, I shouldn't be calling them differences. I should be calling them preferences. <laughs> if you yeah. look at it through the lens of, if you look at it through a, a cultural preference or a generational preference, it takes away that divide, the divisiveness. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if that's true, but I, I, that always stuck with me. Yeah. I like to say, uh, and I have in front of audiences, actually probably one that you was, you sat in at one point or another, put out the question about what's one thing that every other person in this room has in common with every other person in this room. And, and, the, and the answer is that they're different from each other. Hmm. So hmm. why does commonality and again, it was also one of the questions I opened a session I did last year at an event that you were in the audience for, I think. I, um, and, and, and the idea was, how do we achieve commonality despite our differences? And that's a, that's a big challenge. You know, so if, if we know that Joe's a drunk, uh, if we know that so-and-so acts a little crazy sometimes, or do we know if so-and-so needs to you know, keep an eye out for them because you just don't know what they're going to do next? Those are, those are differences, and they, they present problems rather than present situations where some one, one other person could be of help to that individual as opposed to stepping back and not, getting, not demonstrating caring and not doing something that could have a positive impact on their, the course of their life for the next little bit or maybe for a long time. Your thoughts? The stigmatized group at one point People that went for help were definitely looked at differently. So I think we need to, and we've come a long way as a culture. We've definitely come a long way as a culture. We still have a little ways to go, but it's definitely gotten so much better. People are so much more receptive to this conversation. You know, sometimes we talk about all the work we need to do and we don't look at the wins of how people have changed. You know, sometimes I think it's easy for me to look at what we still have to keep doing instead of looking back how far some, especially some individuals that I know have come, it's uh, you know, we are doing well and we are helping people. As you sit here today and think into the future, what other things or what among the, the tools and techniques that are being used now to deal with these issues need more work? You know, what's, you know, what, what more needs to happen in the future uh, to try to have a measurable and, and continuous positive impact on the numbers that you shared early in our conversation? I think industry-wide, we, there needs to be more education and training around this subject, right? And for two reasons. The first, one of the, we do a peer support class in at headquarters in Hanover. And one of the pieces that we do there is a piece on uh, how the brain heals from addiction. So if you've been using substances for a long period of time, habitually, your brain goes through a healing process. Uh, we talked about some of the pharmacology with some of the mental health, um, the drugs that you might use. The point of bringing that up is that it gives people context to why people that are struggling or recovering are acting a certain way. Mm -hmm. When our people seem to have context, they tend to be a little more understanding because it removes the ignorance and they're more educated and they see things from a different perspective. They still might have their opinions about the individual, mm -hmm. but they understand why the actions and the behaviors are what they are, right? Yeah. So that, that's a big piece. And I think another one we need to do is, is take this to job sites more. There should be toolbox talks and safety stand downs around these issues. And we've done some of these things in Philadelphia, but we need to meet people where they're at. You know, the, the communication is tough in, in a 
in in any building trades organization really for it to for the information to filter down and out so that everybody gets it right but we can be on we should be on sites talking about this message normalizing the conversation letting them know their resources and again making people feel like it's okay and that they're supported to get help so i think job more on the job i guess training for lack of a better word would be would be beneficial mm-hmm. good yeah i would agree with that i think it's a great idea chris Shyblind, we're at the end. You've done good service. You answered my questions. You were well behaved. I'm saying <laughs> I'm saying these on the recording so that when your when your your boss, you know, listens to this podcast, he'll know that the host rated your your performance as uh, outstanding. Good to know. It's been a delight getting to know you outside of this uh, this interview, and you're doing great work. You know, it's a joy for me to be able to say that I, you know, I, I never hear anything other than praise for how you go about being who you are. And I think without someone of your of your abilities and your experience and your caring, that uh, the Helping Hands program might not be where it is now. And I believe that the leadership of your of your union recognizes that. So I congratulate you on your great work, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for having a conversation about a topic that people will listen to this conversation, but it won't be easy for some of them. And yeah. if it's not, then, then we're helping them because we're not putting them in a room in front of other people. They can listen to it in the privacy of their car or their home and learn from you. So thank you very much for coming on the Soft to Steel podcast. Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate you having me. Thanks again. You're welcome. Good seeing you. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of the Softest Steel podcast with your host, Dennis Duran. Dennis is the author of Softest Steel and a leading speaker and trainer for organizations across many industries and verticals. To learn more about the work Dennis is doing to activate soft skills in the workplace, contact him at DennisDuranSpeaking.com. Be sure to check out his book, Softest Steel, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. And please remember to share this episode with your friends, colleagues, and anyone you feel would benefit from the conversation. We'll see you next time on the Softest Steel Podcast with Dennis Duran. Produced by Audovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.